Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle and I am your host. And on today's show, we got the whole crew back together. Joining us is Luke Box. Hi. Uh, also with us today is Megan Payne. Hey, y'all. Happy Pride Month. And rounding out the crew today is Ben Stout. Yo, dogs. Uh, so on today's show, we are going to spend a lot of time talking about rural Georgia. Uh, for our first topic, we're going to take a look at sort of the broad discussion going on right now around economic development in rural Georgia. Um, you know, we've paid a lot of attention to this issue when we've talked about disaster aid for Hurricane Michael and how that's impacted farmers in southwest Georgia. I think we've kind of sporadically hit on what's been going on with the House Rural Development Council, this big effort uh, from House leadership to basically create a rural develop rural economic development agenda. Um and that you know, and then there's just sort of the general conversations around healthcare and education and transportation that that define the economic opportunities for these areas. But we've never really kind of put it all together in in one package. So we wanted to do that for you today. Um, and then for our second topic this week, we are joined by Tamar Hallerman. She is the Washington correspondent at the AJC, and she wrote a story uh, last week now talking about. The new NAFTA agreement, it's called the USMCA, and the split that that agreement has created in uh, Georgia's agricultural community between um, some interests that feel uh, protected and represented in the deal and other interests uh, that feel like they uh, really didn't get uh, what they needed to to have a thriving um, industry in agriculture in Georgia. Um, so it's created a really interesting split. And uh, central to that is a study coming out of the University of Georgia, which was blasted by a former University of Georgia student and now Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. Um, so tomorrow, I'll join us for that in that second segment. And then we'll wrap up the show today uh, with just a quick recap of an interview uh, that Casey Cagle did. He is he is back in Georgia politics, uh, but as we'll discuss, he is he is not going to be back for long. Um, but we will react to what we heard in that interview. Um, so those are the big topics for today. Uh, but we wanted to lead the show off today uh, to mark the beginning of Pride Month. Um, it is it is now June. It is now summer. Um, and it is also uh, a month that celebrates LGBTQ history. Um, and Megan, I know you wanted to kick us off uh with a story about the Stonewall riots and and kind of uh, the beginning of the LGBTQ movement. Absolutely. Thanks, Kyle. So one of the things that I've noticed in my work in the LGBTQ community is that even members of our own community don't know how Pride Month got started. And they actually started with the Stonewall riots on June 28th, 1969, which for those of you who are math savvy, means that this is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots and of June kind of becoming what we know as Pride Month. The other thing that I really want to highlight about this, I want to make it well known, is that this is a super intersectional movement. There would not be Pride Month without women of color. Um, and so it, not just women of color, but also trans women of color. And so that's super important to just say right off the bat. It's called the Stonewall Riots because it actually occurred at the Stonewall Inn, which was a dive bar in Greenwich Village on Christopher Street. And it was actually run by the Mafia. Um, which provided the LGBTQ community with a little bit of protection for a while, but the bar was really just kind of a haven for people that didn't have anywhere else to go, which was widely a problem that the LGBTQ community experienced. It was still illegal to be gay at the time. Anti-sodomy laws were 
widely enforced. Police even used entrapment tactics to enforce the law and catch people. Um, and so on the 28th, at about 1.20 a.m., the Stonewall Inn was raided. The whole thing lasted until, lasted until about 4 a.m., so not a long time. But it kind of just started with everyone being afraid of what the cops would do. Um, a lot of people in that bar had IDs that didn't match their gender presentation or identity. Their ID said what their legal sex was rather than what their sex was that they felt and they identified with. Um, and so everyone refused to show their IDs, not just because of their gender identity, but also because some people were underage. Um, it was, as I mentioned previously, a haven. So it was a, where a lot of people went that, you know, didn't really have another place to go. The officers even wanted to bring some of the trans women into a back room to check their anatomy, which was highly inappropriate. Um, and so that kind of started the first bit of the protest when Marsha Johnson, a black trans woman, threw a shot glass at a mirror in protest. So we finally have someone from the LGBTQ community standing up to the police. There were actually a bunch of people outside who had been able to escape the bar um, as the riot started or who had heard that something was going on and just gathered to watch. And word began getting out that they were mistreating the people who were trapped in the bar. And people started being pulled out by the cops to be arrested and put into a paddy wagon. And Stormé de Lavarie, who is a butch lesbian, a woman of color, and from New Orleans, so fun tie into Louisiana, she was fighting with the cops and got clubbed. And as she was being thrown into the paddy wagon, she shouted to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? And this really sparked the entire movement. Um, she's actually known as the Rosa Parks of the gay community because of this. Um, so the gay community that was uh, gathered around vastly outnumbered the police. And so they started throwing pennies, beer bottles, cans, bricks, whatever they could find. And really just fought the cops and stood up to them. So by 4 a.m., the Stonewall Inn was in ruins. But people began to return to that, that bar every single night. Um, just because they now knew that they could defy the cops and they had a place where they could go. So exactly one year later, on June 28th, 1970, that was when the first Pride Parade took place. It was organized by the Gay Liberation Front, which was actually formed the night of the Stonewall Riots. And that has started the Pride Movement as we know it today. Uh, as the New York Times aptly put it yesterday, the term no more Mrs. Nice Gay comes to mind because the gay community realized, hey, we can stand up for ourselves and we can do something. And that's when the pride movement was born. So now it, it's really appropriate that we're talking about it, not only because it's the 50th anniversary, but also because the Equality Act has just passed the House and should be headed to the Senate. And so not only is it just historic, but it's also very pertinent from a legislative standpoint. Yeah. And so um, just to sort of touch on the Equality Act a little bit more, um, this was something we talked about recently, but the the legislative effort to pass um, anti-discrimination protections for people based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. That is an effort that actually goes back to 1974. Um, and between 1974 and 2015, there were 178 different legislative proposals that were offered up to ban discrimination in public accommodations, education, federal programs, employment, housing, 
credit, jury selection, and service in the armed forces. Um, these 178 different proposals that have been considered, they protected some combination of those things. Uh, but it's worth noting that the most of the proposals that were put forth uh, between 1974 and 2009, they only offered protections based on sexual orientation. And it wasn't until 2009 that gender identity became an important uh, protection that was included in these bills. As you look back over time, there's a lot of really notable names in our politics that have been uh, promoters of equality legislation, including our own John Lewis, but also Jared Polis, who's currently the governor of Colorado. He's the nation's second openly LGBTQ governor. Um, Kate Brown in Oregon was the first. Um, You've got a couple of presidential candidates on this list, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders, uh, John Kerry, former presidential candidate, was a sponsor. Ted Kennedy, a longtime liberal lion in the Senate, was a sponsor. Dianne Feinstein from California is a former sponsor of one of these bills. Uh, But Megan, correct me if I'm wrong. The Equality Act that passed the House is the first piece of federal non-discrimination legislation that protects against discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity that has passed a House of Congress. That is Um, correct, as I understand it. um, Despite these proposals being introduced as far back as 1974. But it's it's worth noting the Stonewall riots and and then tracing this history since the 70s, um, because um, the, the bill, when it was introduced by Representative Bella Abzerg from New York, um, it was really meaningful at the time. Um, there's a, a, a Daily Beast article that we'll share in the show notes that notes that David Mixner, who would go on to become a uh, advisor to President Bill Clinton, um, he was gay, but he was not out in 1974. And he uh, saw that this bill was introduced in Congress. He cut out the article like they used to do in the olden days and and hid it in the top drawer of his dresser. And he told the Daily Beast, most of us hated ourselves and didn't think that we deserved equality and that this bill was a symbol of great hope to have someone in the U.S. Congress say that people deserved equality. Two years later, he's, he tells the Daily Beast, he came out in good part because I thought that they were people who believed we will we were normal and okay, and that we deserve protection. Um, so even the introduction of that bill made a difference back in the 1970s, but there is a long legislative history to get to this piece of legislation passing the House for the first time. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, um, it is now before the Senate. It seems unlikely that the Senate will take it up. Uh, but the fact that it has passed a chamber of Congress and that the entire Democratic field uh, seems to view it as a legislative priority, um, it certainly seems likely that this is a bill that can get through Congress uh, within the next couple of terms. All right, let's move on to our first topic this week. We wanted to have this discussion about uh, the efforts around rural economic development in the state. And and there's a couple of things that have been going on in the state that are worth mentioning to kind of set up this conversation. Um, This is a conversation that has come to the fore in the state largely because uh, the House and Speaker David Ralston has empowered a House Rural Economic Development Committee um, to take a wide look at the whole gamut of uh, economic development issues that are challenges in rural Georgia, everything from healthcare to education to attracting employers and getting people to move there. Um, this was a committee that that he put together and it empowered a lot of lawmakers to take a look at this issue And it was one that when it was introduced, I sort of 
absorbed that this could be a legacy item for the speaker. This is a really challenging public policy problem. And it's one that when the first slate of recommendations came out, the Rural Development Council laid out some really bold ideas that I I find kind of unusual for most of our debates on public policy in the legislature, including an idea that would have basically paid people to move to rural Georgia. Uh, But what we have seen in the years since is that most of the big ideas did not come to pass. The idea of paying people to move to rural Georgia was one that actually didn't really come up for a vote. But instead, as lawmakers have faced these challenges, they have really sort of fallen back onto incremental steps to improve rural economic conditions. Um, and so we wanted to kind of evaluate what's been going on with that commission and, and talk about some of the problems that they are facing um, but first, I just kind of wanted to get take everybody's temperature on this question, um, because one of the things that sort of sets up this conversation is the fact that most cities in rural Georgia are actually losing population. The AJC reported that in the last year alone, more than a third of Georgia's small towns lost population, and then more than half of small towns, towns that are uh that have populations under 10,000 have lost people since 2010. So for everybody here, what would it take for you to consider moving to rural Georgia? What do you think about as um, if you were like presented the opportunity to do that? Well, Kyle, since I am currently in rural Georgia, uh, the primary thing I think rural Georgia really needs is, is internet uh, because pretty much Everybody needs the internet. It's it's become a public utility in the same way that power and water is. Uh, that's a whole other public policy, you know, discussion about how it gets paid for and all that kind of stuff. But the the government could definitely be doing more to get uh, better internet out into the rural areas because I mean, what it comes down to is the reason why people are leaving rural Georgia is is not because it's a crappy place to be uh, inherently. It's just it's not got the modern amenities that people are used to and when it you know takes 15 minutes to load an episode of your favorite show on netflix it's not really worth it to you know live out there and so for you know folks who more and more are actually graduating from high school and then going to college you know going back to their you know 10,000 people town in rural georgia isn't as good as an economic opportunity as going to atlanta or going to some other state so i think uh, ultimately, the state's going to have to step in with uh, some of these proposals to just improve the infrastructure. Because, I mean, that's that's really what needs to happen down here is just to have jobs that work in the economy of 2019. Like, you have to have internet. You have to have opportunities that re- you know, require broadband. And so, I mean, a- out of all the proposals, that one seems to be the most no-brainer for me. And I'm surprised we haven't seen more move on that. Yeah, I mean, like Luke said, rural broadband is an issue, but also, you know, there's um, there's quality of the, uh, there's quality of life. But I think uh, specifically, it's just um, it's like economic opportunity. So I get the privilege of working in rural Georgia most of uh, most of my time, and um, and if there are jobs out there, the people who are there typically would prefer to stay that I have met. Um, if they can have a good job. And then the second biggest thing, the two things that I've seen that, that people that I know why they um, move away from rural Georgia is because lack of economic opportunity. But the second one being healthcare. 
and we can get into that later if we want to, but, but, um, but rural hospitals are struggling right now. Many of these 10,000 and less smaller communities don't have a lot of the healthcare amenities that some larger communities have. And so if somebody um, has an, an illness that requires them to go to the doctor regularly, then, um, then it doesn't just, it really doesn't make sense to be in a community that doesn't have that quality of care. And so those are the two reasons that, um, that, that I've known a lot of my friends who have left rural Georgia. I would still like to live in rural Georgia, but that's an uphill sell on the wife. Not going to happen. For me to consider moving to rural Georgia, it would be several things. First, it would be I need a barn and I need horses and I need someone to pay for those, preferably the state, if they really want me to move <laughs> out there. Um, I also need access to a Target and I need access to healthcare, and I need really good internet. So basically, I think that boils down to I'm not moving to rural Georgia. Mark it down, Development Commission. That's one heck of a urban severance package right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what do we think about sort of where where this discussion is headed? And, and we can talk about it in the lens of, of um, broadband access or, or health care. But I'm just struck by the fact that politically... Republicans now have sort of gone all in on maintaining their power in the legislature by appealing to rural voters. Um, they are the Republicans as a party dominate the rural economic development committee. And this to me, if you are maybe willing to set aside the basic conservative principle of government not being the the front runner and doing things on this issue, this to me seems like a slam dunk of like, what should be the Republicans' priority in a way that would speak to their voters, help them maintain the power that they've created, and do something good at pub with public policy that Democrats probably would not snipe at them about. But the movement on this has been really incremental. On rural broadband, I think the big piece of legislation was allowing uh, EMCs and phone companies to provide internet. Uh, we didn't get around to considering a... Uh, what was what became quickly known as the Netflix tax that would have raised revenue to to spread internet in rural Georgia. Um, what do we think about sort of the slow and incremental pace of getting some of this rural development work done? I think there's two aspects to it. And before I get to them, uh, I think after re the recent weeks, if you proposed a Netflix tax, many conservatives may be jumping on board now. But that's neither here nor there. My point is that... Um, I think that the, one of the reasons you're seeing people kind of moving slowly into this is because there are a lot of technology and private sector concerns. Like you said, it's Republicans that dominate this committee and, uh, to be fair, kind of dominate the legislative process in our state right now. And they're concerned about d making drastic steps that are uh, out, out of date within three years, right? So we've heard all about 5G, 5G, 5G is kind of what people within the rural broadband conversation are having. Why do we, we don't need to lay wire all across the state, which has a very expensive price tag to it, if we're just going to have small cell towers going around? It's looking like the cost of putting those small cell towers in, another bill that was just passed in the past session in which there was kind of compromise between the cities and the counties and the, uh, and the cell tower companies, um, but the, it, it would just be not be financially feasible to do that all across the state. But one of the real hesitations that I have heard from state legislators is they don't want to propose a solution that is technologically out of date within three to five years. For Luke or Megan, is there an opening here for 
Democrats to champion these issues? I mean, Democrats do tend to be the party that would expect government to act. I do. So, you know, one of the things that all of us keep talking about is broadband and internet access and that being kind of the gateway to a lot of people being able to be successful in rural Georgia. And if you really want to talk about being able to support people and enable people in many, many different ways, um, not just, you know, getting them internet so they can watch Netflix, but like getting them internet so they can have jobs and have income and have access to education and all of those things that are really more difficult to get in rural areas. Um, If Democrats were to champion that in and of itself, it could potentially provide a lot of growth and a lot of support to underserved areas and underserved populations. Um, Not just those that are in, you know, we're, we're focusing on rural areas here, but also those who are financially underprivileged. So I think, I think there's definitely an opportunity there. I I would agree because I think uh, many candidates in the Democratic Party in Georgia don't know how to talk to rural voters. And I mean, the thing that Democrats have figured out in states like Montana and Ohio and other, you know, states that have like really rural areas and, you know, pretty healthy Democratic parties is like rural voters are just like any other type of voter. They have issues that they are concerned about. And if you can talk to them about them and address those issues, they're willing to vote for you. And so, you know, if a Democrat came and, you know, my now resident in Oglethorpe County and campaigned really hard on rural electrification and could get some uh, sorry, rural electrification. Jesus, is it the 1940s again? <laughs> is no, is rural... FDR coming to Oglethorpe <laughs> <Yeah>. County? <laughs> yes, rural broadband. Excuse me. I'm uh, leaving. And was you know was a oh please do but uh, yeah. and focused on rural broadband and was able to you know bring some results. I think that would be a very successful politician. It's just Democrats aren't willing to have that conversation, and it's one they they should be having because one, I mean, it, it's very important to the state and would help the state significantly, and you know, two, it would make them more competitive. Yeah, Republicans certainly understand the seriousness of rural broadband, and I don't know that Democrats do at this point and understand the opportunity there should Republicans drop the ball. But this is like like a basic human necessity. I mean, all the time, whenever I've gone to uh, to different meetings in rural areas, there's story after story about every night my daughter gets home, we have dinner, and then we drive her up to McDonald's so that she can do her homework because she can't do it at our house because we don't have internet. I mean, that's story after story that impacts people's daily lives in a very real way. And I think Republicans get that. That's why you have, you know, uh, Chairman England, who's the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, is the chairman of this. I mean, it is the the heavy hitters are on this committee because I think that Ralston and others are very serious about this and they get that if this especially this issue, but rural issues, but especially rural broadband, if it's not taken care of, then then you're leaving a huge door open for, for Democrats to make inroads. And I think Republicans understand that. And while we haven't seen quick movement, I think that the, the realization of how important this issue is in rural communities is well understood with Republicans in the Gold Dome. So yeah, I think part of what is challenging for Republicans right now is they are kind of getting caught up in the legislative process on this issue. Um, And one bill that was introduced this last legislative session that didn't get through dealt with the issue of rural transit. And, you know, transit may not be the first thing that you think of when you think of challenges facing rural Georgia. Uh, But when Kevin Tanner, um, who's the chairman of the Transportation Committee, when he brought this bill forward, um, he described and some AJC reporting described the challenges for people in just getting to work in rural Georgia, because there aren't uh, bus systems that are easily accessible. And so you're, you're, 
basically have to have a car. And if you don't have a car and you don't have a lot of family and friends you can rely on to kind of, you know, get a ride here, get a ride there, you're you're basically out of luck. There is no Uber, there is no Lyft, there is no of there's no that kind of stuff. And so this to me seemed like it'd be a pretty easy thing to do, but the issue got caught up in consolidating different transit agencies into one and the Georgia Department of Transportation wasn't happy about that. And it just kind of got thrown into the legislative morass that was this first legislative session under this administration. And it it just died. I mean, we're in the first part of the biennial, so it'll it'll be there next year. But something as simple as consolidating transit agencies to just build the framework for rural transit is something that got sort of bogged down in this process. You've seen it with the Netflix tax. Um, we've seen it with healthcare. You know, Democrats have been demanding Medicaid expansion for years, but Republicans had the opportunity for years to do something that wasn't Medicaid expansion if they wanted to. Um, and they've landed on a tax credit program that I think is small and ineffective um, and, and doesn't really deal Medicaid with the expansion. issue. Um, but, you know, I think that that this is where Democrats, if they were really like thinking about policy and really uh, pushing Republicans on some of these things, they could they could sort of put them in a corner politically and say, you really need to do this thing or, or we're going to start running ads in, in rural communities about how you're you're letting your own voters down um, and you're letting them down because things get lost in in just legislative debate. Um, so the one sort of big roadblock here potentially for Democrats is some of the culture issues that Democrats have taken strong stances on. They've been uh, fiercely opposed to the heartbeat abortion ban bill that passed. Previously, they were opposed to religious liberty legislation. And these are issues that uh, find a lot of support in rural Georgia. Um, the AJC recently did a story where, you know, if you if you read most of the coverage of the heartbeat bill, you would have thought that everyone in the state opposed this bill and you would um, have wondered how in the world it passed. And so uh, some reporters went out into rural Georgia, particularly into the Bible Belt, and asked voters there what they thought about the bill. And it was almost universally approved and accepted um, because this is where a lot of Republican lawmakers who supported that bill came from, and they were representing the views of their constituents and getting this bill done. Um, so what do we think about the sort of the culture issues here as a barrier? Uh, because people in rural Georgia don't only care about economic development. No, in fact, I would argue that uh, many rural Georgians probably care more about social issues than maybe some um, uh, some more of those in the suburban or urban areas, uh, especially Republicans. Typically, re Republicans in the suburban areas typically tend to be more kind of less tax, um, uh, you know, more taxation, kind of moderate Republicans, uh, whereas rural um, Republicans tend to be socially and fiscally conservative. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, uh, for, for Republicans, it's a bread and bummer. I think that's a, a hard challenge for Democrats in Georgia um, especially kind of if you're taking the Stacey Abrams route where you're a progressive's progressive. And if you're doing that and then coming out there, that's why there was, um, uh, whenever I was working in that election, it was that she was a crazy woman is what people were saying in the rural areas because, uh, she was in no way speaking to rural Georgian voters. And I think that, I think it's a real challenge. Um, especially as the left in the last four to five years has turned more left, uh, on social issues. Um, I think it's a, it's a hard sell for Georgia voters for y'all. 
but I think then that sort of you know illustrates this barrier because you know Megan or Luke, these are issues that for good reason Democrats don't want to compromise on, right? Correct, and I think that they're correct in not compromising on them. Some of these social issues are not just social issues; they're down to basic human rights, and so I, I think that there's there is a way to learn to speak to different parties. In fact, I do it all the time. Um, but at the same time, there are definitely some things that it, that will def- that will make it hard for Democrats to be heard by people in rural Georgia who are not going to be swayed by these issues. So Democrats are going to have to learn how to navigate this social issue versus economic issue divide because there's a big opportunity. I know. I know. Ben said <laughs> said the Republicans understand the opportunity, and they. I, I bet they do. But I, I think when it comes down to it, if they have the opportunity to push the social issues harder or push the economic issues harder, they're going to push the social issues harder every single time. And uh, I, I think Democrats should, you know, not take Ben and the Republican Party at its word that you know rural voters care more about the social issues. And I think we should take the economic issues to their doorsteps and see uh, how it shakes out. Yeah. So this is um, you know an issue that will continue to follow, you know, this conversation kind of got quickly into into the politics of all of this. But I think that politics is what determines the policy that gets considered. And so to the extent that Republicans maintain control of the legislature and in this week, the week that we're talking, there's a there's a brand new organization seeking to elect a Democratic majority in the House in 2020. Uh, but until that happens, um, politics and and particularly the priorities of Republicans are going to guide the policy discussion in our state. Um, And and to me, unless uh, Republicans sort of start to start to come up with more concrete accomplishments on, on these rural development issues um, you know, the, these issues won't move forward. Um, So with that, let me uh, turn it over to the conversation that I had with Tamar Hallerman about recent reporting that she did on the new trade deal being considered in Congress between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, and the divide that it has created in Georgia's agriculture community. All right. So now joining the podcast is Tamar Hallerman, the Washington correspondent at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, So in November, President Trump, along with the leaders of Mexico and Canada, signed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. The trade deal is an update of the NAFTA deal signed in the 90s, but the agreement has also created a divide in Georgia's agriculture industry. So tomorrow, last week, you wrote about this divide in agriculture. Can you just describe this split and how the trade deal factors in here? Yeah, of course. So a lot of this is an extension of kind of the winners and losers that were created by NAFTA in the 1990s. Poultry, for example, Georgia's biggest export did really well under the agreement. Um, You know, it opened up especially the Mexican market to, to Georgia poultry and exports from Georgia shot up by, you know, 
five or six fold. Same deal for cotton. Timber farmers got a lot of access as well. So they were really happy and they wanted to keep um, all the benefits from NAFTA as Trump was renegotiating this new trade deal. And then you had uh, kind of the losers from the NAFTA agreement, produce farmers, people who are growing fresh fruits and vegetables like blueberries, tomatoes, lettuce, um, who are, who claim that they were really hurt by by NAFTA. Their growing season overlaps with the Mexican season. And, and they were saying that a lot of the um, you know, production subsidies that Mexican farmers were were getting, in addition to cheap labor, lower, you know, regulatory thresholds, they were making it so that you know, the, the Mexican produce coming into the U.S. was so much cheaper than what they were able to produce in Georgia. So when Trump was was renegotiating the agreement over the last couple of years, they were hoping for new protections and they weren't able to get that. So a lot of them have come out in opposition to this new, new agreement. One of the things that has sort of become a lightning rod in this discussion is a recent study from the University of Georgia that issued projections on the outlook for Georgia fruit and vegetable producers under USMCA. Um, so what did this study find and, and where are some of the most vulnerable places in our state under this deal? Yeah, this study found that Georgia agriculture could lose about 8,000 jobs and nearly a billion dollars in annual economic output, they said, unless something occurs to slow down the imp- the uh, increase in low-priced Mexican imports of, of blueberries, vegetables, other produce, as, a, as I mentioned. And they specifically highlighted several counties down in South Georgia, kind of near Valdosta, that they warned could see, um, you know, Great Depression level economic harm should current trends continue. So pretty, pretty dire numbers there. And you know, key to this debate, and particularly as a, as a Georgia figure, former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue, who's now the Agriculture Secretary, he himself is a UGA graduate. How did he react to uh, this study out of his alma mater? <laughs> Not only is, is he a big UGA graduate, but a huge part of his current job as Secretary of Agriculture is to sell this new trade agreement from the Trump administration. So he came out with an op-ed in the Columbus Ledger Inquirer, just completely, um, you know, completely slamming it for um you know, what he called really sensationalist conclusions. He says it doesn't take into account the fact that a lot of these farmers were already hurting under NAFTA. And his argument is that the increased access to the Mexican markets that that this new deal would provide, he thinks would benefit all of agriculture. So um, pretty harsh words from somebody who overall has been a huge ally to UGA throughout his career. So you you cover Georgia's congressional delegation on a daily basis. How are lawmakers who represent rural Georgia sort of working their way through this debate? Yeah, well, so this is an issue that's been on the horizon for a while now, but no one has really been forced to take a concrete position yet. People are waiting to see what Speaker Nancy Pelosi is, is going to do with this agreement. And really, whether whether Congress ratifies this or not is kind of very much in her control. Um, she's been, you know, she and a lot of her top deputies have been meeting with the, with the Trump administration's top trade negotiator. Um, you know, they're, they're worried, of, Democrats are worried about a lot of labor and environmental provisions that are in the current deal and are hoping to make some tweaks. Um, you know, the initial thought was that they were going to be able to perhaps take a vote this summer. Now that's looking like that might be later. So because of that, a lot of Georgia lawmakers haven't weighed in yet. It's only just now starting to get onto their radars. But 
so far, a lot of the people I've reached out to, like Austin Scott, Sanford Bishop, um, you know, a Democrat and Republican who both represent South Georgia, so far they've really tried to stay out of the debate. Agriculture is such a huge part of their districts, but at the same time, this deal is so much broader than that. It touches things like car manufacturing, intellectual property, financial services. So there are a lot of different things to be weighing for them as as they um, go through this. At the same time, you've seen people like David Perdue and Johnny Isaacson, Drew Ferguson from, uh, he was kind of a South, uh, or sorry, a Central uh, Western Congressional District along the Alabama border. They've overall said pretty positive things about the agreement so far, but kind of tentatively saying we want to see how this will impact the state. So I think there could, we could see a lot of movement between now and an eventual vote if that does indeed happen. So What's next for USMCA? I know you said there may be a vote later this year, but it, it seems like uh, the president has thrown another into the another issue into the mix here with with tariffs on Mexico. What did he do uh, related to that last week, and and how does that factor into this discussion? Sure. Well, well, he announced last week that that he was planning to slap an, an escalating series of tariffs on Mexico because he doesn't think the government down there has done enough to combat illegal immigration and the flow of um, you know, drugs and illegal activity coming across the southern border. So his hope is that, you know, by starting with a 5% tariff on all Mexican imports and eventually increasing that step by step to about 25% over a series of months, he's hoping that he can get more promises from the Mexican government on, on immigration. Now that could throw this entire, you know, new trade agreement into, into chaos. Not only that, but last week we also saw his administration form send um, the proposal to Capitol Hill, which which starts a clock for Nancy Pelosi. She basically, I, I think it's 60 or 90 days that she has to act. And she came out with a statement shortly thereafter saying that was a really tone deaf thing for the Trump administration to do. She was saying that talks between her and Trump's top, uh, top trade negotiators negotiator were going very well. Like I mentioned, she wanted some tweaks to the agreement. But because they formally you know, sent this this trade deal to the Hill, starting this clock, she, she said that was a really um, bad gesture that kind of undercuts the progress that had been made. So we'll really see the, these next two, three months are really going to be critical. And if they don't get this done before lawmakers leave for their August recess, it's going to be really, it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to do it this year. So really watch the next few weeks and months. So just as an observer, it seems like I've come across a lot of headlines that describe a really tough environment in rural Georgia for for Georgia agriculture. And and this is a topic that we're going to expand on in the rest of today's show. Um, But what are some of the other headwinds that are facing Georgia agriculture right now? Well, you know, first of all, we, you know, to, to kind of set the stage for all this, it's been a, a bad couple of years for farmers, not only in Georgia, but across the U.S. You've seen low global commodity prices. So just the, the price internationally for things like cotton has been has been quite low. So that's that's created a tough situation for farmers. You've had earlier series of tariffs from from China, from the EU that have also made it really hard for a lot of producers that rely on trade with China. Especially, um, for example, pecans, you know, one of Georgia's biggest exports to China. Um, 
that, you know, hit, hit very hard by that when all of a sudden you're, you're having all these new duties of, of 10%, 15%, 25%. Um, then you have Hurricane Michael, which, which hit in October that, that really led to, you know, decimated a lot of agriculture, particularly pecan orchards, which, um, you know, suffered generational damage, which means a lot of farmers have to start from scratch planting new trees that will take 5, 10, 15 years to be mature and to start producing crop again. And because of Congress's delay in getting getting federal emergency aid to those farmers to help kind of make up for their losses, that's added even more insult to injury. So it really has been a triple whammy, a quadruple whammy. It's been a, a tough situation for these farmers these last few years. All right. And is there anything else worth adding to this discussion before we go today? Um, I mean, just just really, it's worth watching the dynamic with with Nancy Pelosi. She's really the the one to watch for all of this to see whether this trade deal sinks or swims. Um, you know, the, this is the sort of thing where there, in general, there there is more overlap between Democrats and, and the Trump administration on trade. You know, the, there are some of the more progressive wings of the party that that see, you know, that that do want to renegotiate a lot of. Um, these provisions in NAFTA. So in theory, the table is set for an agreement, but at the same time, there's a lot of bad blood and mistrust. And so that's really something to watch over the next few weeks. Is that a hurdle that that Pelosi and the Trump administration can get over? Or is there just so much bad blood that it makes it impossible to even do something where there is a common goal? All right. Well, tomorrow, this is an issue that we'll be keeping an eye on. And and for our listeners, if you want to know what's going on with our congressional delegation in Washington, you really should be reading tomorrow's reporting. You can find it in the AJC and at the Political Insider blog. But with that, we will leave it there. And tomorrow, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much. All right. So thank you to Tamar for joining the program today. Let's just close it out with a quick hit on the re-emergence of Casey Cagle back into our politics. Cagle did an interview on the Ben Burnett show that's a part of the App and Media Network um, in Alpharetta. And uh, this was really the first time that we heard from him uh, since since he lost the primary a year ago. And one of the things that the thing that really got the headlines that that people were interested in is is how Cagle is still living with uh, Clay Tippins, another former uh, go- candidate for governor in that primary last year, how Cagle is living with the fact that, that Clay Tippins secretly recorded him and then released those recordings and segments of those recordings to the media. Um, those recordings combined with President Trump's endorsement of Brian Kemp basically sealed Cagle's fate in that race. Um, so Cagle, this was his reaction to how he feels about Clay Tippins. He told he told App and Media, he said, can you forgive and forget? It's hard. It's hard. But in life as a whole, we are by nature a forgiving people, and we want to see the best in others, but they're going to let you down. I don't want to see that particular individual in a dark alley at night where it's just he and I, and it's definitely not because he's a Navy SEAL, but you've got to move forward, and we have. <laughs> Guys, has Casey Cagle moved on? <laughs> Uh, no, Casey Cagle has not moved on. Um, but you know, it, it's it's all right. You know, if if everyone told you for you know like four years you're going to be the next governor of Georgia, and then you you blow out 
as bad as he did, I, I'd be sore too. I mean, it's you know it's unfortunate for Cagle, I think, that he had that whole recorded conversation fiasco happen because now he gets like he has like something he can point to and be like, that's why I lost. But really, I think Cagle was going to lose anyway because. The work, you know, like the best day of his campaign was the day he announced, and I really felt like it only got worse from there. So yeah, I, I, th- I think the tape like just sealed the deal, but I think he was going to lose anyway. Yeah, I think this further to what you know what you were saying, Luke. It he was never a great candidate to begin with, and I think his reaction to this question was just further endorses or further confirms that is that he is a weak candidate. What I feel like the best move would have been to do was just say, nah. I'm not too happy about it, but okay, you know, and just move on. Don't insinuate beating each other up in a dark alley. Um, Just if you want to show yourself as a strong candidate, then show yourself as a strong moral candidate who's able to move past issues. Yeah. So the one other uh, sort of notable piece of news out of this uh, interview that Cagle did was he basically said that he was not planning on entering politics anytime soon. Um, he talked about being sort of at peace with his his life and business, um, and so I, I basically I I wouldn't expect him uh, to be running for office again soon, uh, but he is definitely not over uh, the way things ended for him in 2018. All right, team, we're going to leave it there for this week, and we will talk to y'all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend, and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.